morning again. If you would open your Bibles to the first epistle of Peter, chapter 2. It is great to be back preaching for you, for us, and from the Word. I have missed it. I'm thankful for the break I had to focus on some other writing. So that does not... It doesn't feel like a break. It feels a little bit like a deprivation, honestly. So I'm glad to be back. I hope I'm not at risk of losing my job. Um, I do preach longer than the other guys. So take that for what you will. (laughs) So we're in 1 Peter chapter 2. And I'm going to read verses 4 and 5. We're just going to cover two verses today. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Pray with me, if you would. Father, I ask that you would give us a mind today to remove distractions from our heart and that we would behave in a way in this room that encourages others to pay attention and to listen and to not draw attention to ourselves. These truths are weighty and this time is sacred as we have given it to you as a small token of the fact that we receive from you life and breath and everything. Help us. Help us to consider one another Give us a mind that understands your word. We do not come about these things by accident or by intellect, but by your spirit. These are spiritual truths being imparted to spiritual people. So we pray that it would take root, superintended by your spirit. Would you, where you are, pray that the Lord would bless this time and that you would be encouraged by his word. Would you also pray for me that I would be able to speak clearly, that the words would make sense and that the Lord would be honored. Now, Father, as we come to feed on your word, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts and how we act be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. It's in Jesus' name, our great high priest, that we pray. Amen. Peter begins these verses with this statement, as you come to him. And I want to give something by way of reminder that the context of this entire section from really about verse 3 or 4, depending on where you you pick up this theme, on until about the middle of chapter 2, Peter is telling us how we, as the family of God, act and behave. He's summoning us to a way of life that makes sense in light of what God has done. So he reminds us of all that God has done, verses 3 through 12. He's summoning us to remember it, to think upon it, to feast 
before we turn to action. And then he tells us how we're to act. And he summons us to be holy. This is the central summons of the life of the Christian. We're to set our hope fully on the grace that will be ours at the revelation of Jesus Christ and to live holy lives while we wait for that. And so our text begins with this phrase, as you come to him. So understand this. Peter has not been giving us mere do's and don'ts. That is how many of us, I think especially as younger people, relate to God's law or to the rules of our parents or to the rules of the nation. They seem like arbitrary rules to kill our fun. God is not giving us do's and don'ts through his servant Peter. Rather, he is explaining to us that we do things differently in the family of God. Things happen differently because of who you are. So here is how it is. Because of what God has done, primarily in his causing you to be born again, if indeed you are a Christian, this is your new heritage. This is your new identity. So live in light of it. Live consistently with it. The new birth is not just coming back to life spiritually. It is that, but that is not all it is. The new birth means that you have a new parentage. It's not just a reviving to spiritual life. You've been born Again, which implies a new family that you're born into. And there's no other way to think about it. If you're born again, God, the Father, is your Father. So because of this, we need an orientation. We need to be initiated into the family. That's the flavor of 1 Peter chapter 1 through about the middle of chapter 2. Here's how we behave. This is your orientation into the family of God. We need to be taught by the Spirit within and by the Word coming from others, though from God in its initial source, to tell us how we ought to behave in the kingdom of God, in the family of God, in the household of God. Today, we'll see a few things. First, we'll see more about the centrality of Christ in the family of God. We will also see... Um, what I'm going to call as a unifying theme, what the family business is. So you're, you're made part of the family of God, and there's actually a family business that you now are being equipped for. You see the job description, if you will. All members of the family of God have to be a part of this family business. There are, there are no sidelined believers. This is your inheritance. So, in these first few words, I think we see one of the most fundamental, if not the most fundamental, characteristic of life in the family of God, or the most central family trait. And so many things are summarized in this statement. Coming to Jesus, or going to Jesus as you come to Him. What does that mean? And how is it different from what believing in Jesus has come to mean for us today? It means a few things. First, I think it means an ongoing craving for Jesus. This is what we talked about last week. So put away all malice, 
And all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk. Long for it. Crave it. That by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So this this coming to Him, you see the connection in verse 4. As you come to Him, this one that is referred to, the antecedent of the pronoun Him is the Lord Himself. So you're craving this pure spiritual milk that is only found in Christ directly, and He gives it to you, and you're, you're coming to Him, you're drawing near to Him. And it, but what's implied is an ongoing craving for Him. He is the living water. He is the true manna from heaven. And here, he's the real spiritual milk, craving for Christ, wanting more of him. Does that describe your Christianity? I am deeply concerned that a great number of people who say they believe in Jesus, yet they live their lives with little to no idea what it even means to crave the Lord Jesus. Does the idea of tasting and seeing that the Lord himself is good make you uncomfortable? That you would crave again to taste what you've already received in him? That it's not just a check in the box in your brain for thinking things about a man who lived 2,000 years ago. More of you, Jesus. So it means ongoing craving for the Lord Jesus, this, this drawing near, this as you come to him. It also means ongoing pursuit of Jesus. This is a slightly different. As you come to him. So it's, it's not uh, since you have come to him or, or, or now that you have come to him. It's as you come to him. It implies an, an ongoing pursuit. You're, you're going after him every day. Maybe you could conceive of it this way. It's a blank slate. You've got to start over again pursuing the Lord Jesus. A continual chase, if you will. And I cite it all the time. Hopefully it doesn't become boring to you, but this is what Paul is talking about in Philippians chapter 3, that I might gain Christ. He's already a Christian. He's already received the ministry of apostleship. He's already seen the Lord perform miracles through him. He's done so much. I've suffered the loss of all things that I might gain Christ. He wants him so much. He's pursuing and chasing him, and that is why he does everything else that he does including or up to the loss of all things. This is an approach. This is a chase. This is a pursuit. Jesus says, the Lord says, this is a major biblical theme. Seek me. You will find me. It's all through that, that, that the life of one who trusts in God is not just settled trust sitting there, okay, I believe a certain number of things, but it's going after him. The status form of Christianity is simply dead. He's not honored. This is the way that this applies. He's not honored by mere obedience. Or even a desire to glorify God in some general sense. The Pharisees wanted to do that, but they would not come to Christ. You may have your preferred path of obedience all mapped out. But it's very different from doing everything you can to gain the Lord Jesus Himself. Do you want Him or do you simply want what he can do for you? Save you from hell. 
It also implies ongoing trust in the Lord Jesus as you come to him. We read about this in the psalm that we read this morning, Psalm 31. It's also in the psalm that Peter references here, just a few psalms down the road, Psalm 34. This idea of not being put to shame, that those who trust in the Lord, those who wait on Him, those who look to Him in trust and dependence, those are the ones who will not be put to shame. This is how Psalm 34 says it. A few verses earlier from the place Peter quotes in verse 3. I sought the Lord, and He answered me, and He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to Him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This is the essence of genuine faith. This, faith. this is not some more super spiritual version of faith. You say you believe in Jesus, so what? Believe that He is what? You say you trust in Jesus? What does that mean? Trust in Him that He is what? Or will do what? This is what it means. To buy in to all his claims about how good he really is. That you've really bought in. That you stake your life upon it. That you go to him to be for you all he says he will be for you. That you look to him as the source of all that you need most. That is what belief in the Lord Jesus, trust in the Lord Jesus really means. Just believing that He exists. This is vibrant life. Pursuing Christ in this way is this craving for this pure spiritual milk. It is the going to Him as you come to Him that is to characterize your life as part of the family of God. This is a family trait. He's not just the one who gets us into this thing by virtue of His cross work. He's the one we pursue. That is the family trait. This is the eating of his flesh and drinking of his blood. This is drinking deeply from the living water that he makes to well up within you. I struggle with how to make this clear. This is a massive distinction. But I struggle with how to make this super clear. But think of it this way. You must not see the Lord Jesus as the one who gives you life. No, He must be your life. When Christ, who is your life, appears. He does not do things for you like save you, heal you, raise you from the dead like a rescue worker or a doctor or a necromancer. No, if you come to him in this way, he saves you, he heals you, he raises you from the dead one day because you, through faith, have been united to him. So his life, his vitality, and all his blessedness becomes yours because you're in him. This is what it means to come to him instead of just taking from him. So as we come to him in this way, it becomes more and more clear more and more clear to us just who he is. Who is this one that we're really talking about? Peter gives us kind of a parenthesis, and he's doing it for multiple purposes, but he says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen 
and precious. In the family, older brother, Jesus himself, is the one who sets the path and the pace. He's the forerunner, if you will. Now, it's, it's going to become very clear that he's the stone or he's the cornerstone, but here's the idea, and this is why Peter is saying this here, to help us find our solidarity with him. He's not just doing these things out there in a vacuum. He has gone through these experiences because he's the first one to go through these, experience, these experiences, setting the pattern for us. He's going to say that just in a minute. You yourselves like living stones. And he doesn't connect the dots for us explicitly, but I think we're supposed to connect the dots because of what these first hearers were experiencing. They were rejected by men. So just right now, a gut check. How's your friendship with the world? If Jesus has been rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, how about us? And there are spheres of acceptance that are maybe more acceptable, but are nonetheless still very worldly. That's another message. We'll talk about this more next week, this idea of Jesus being sent rejected but treasured by God and then vindicated. That's, that's really, in some ways, the grand narrative arc of all the universe. So in these Old Testament quotations, Brother Scott will preach for us through those as we see how this theme has been developed for thousands of years. But notice this, that rejection here, specifically because of the Old Testament citations, implies rejection for the purpose of building. It's not just that Jesus was rejected outright. It's that he was rejected because he was meant to be the cornerstone and his own people didn't like that. This is the quotation from Psalm 118. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. I think he, Peter substitutes the word man instead of builders so that we can find that great solidarity as the Christians have been rejected by people in general, maybe the emperor himself, sent into exile, that we find our solidarity with Jesus as he lays the pattern and foreruns us, foreruns for us this life. But for the Lord Jesus, his rejection is primarily connected to this idea that that he was supposed to be the cornerstone. And the builders, when, when the cornerstone arrived to finish out this building that God was building, they rejected him. They cast him out. Significant, even thematically, from a literary perspective, that Jesus died outside the city. So this is a major theme throughout the whole Bible, that God is building something. He's creating something, and the enemy works to tear it down or undo it. And the way he does that is by building something counterfeit, building, building an alternative kingdom, an alternative city. So even Augustine himself talked about the idea of the city of man and the city of God. And these are two strands flowing through all of human history. God seeks to build his city, his house, his temple, and the enemy works for a counterfeit of all of those. The imagery here is that, like we said, Jesus is sent to the builders, meaning those who are supposed to be working for God to build his house. So, the descendants of Abraham, according to the flesh, we could say, and they threw away the cornerstone. 
that God sent them. But in response, God has stepped in and taken that stone that was rejected by the builders and established a new house upon that cornerstone. This same pattern of of, of God sending and creating a thing or, or creating a plan and sending it and it being rejected by people in general, but that being the basis on which it is established is a pattern that applies to us as well. And it becomes very clear in the next statement that it is also applying to us. And there's an encouragement for you here to find yourself walking the same path as the Messiah. We're, we're, we're elect of God, it says, in the first verses of First Peter. So, so we should expect some some aspect of life to correspond to the idea that we're chosen and precious in God's sight, but yet the world rejects us. So you see, it's the exact same pattern. Sent by God, sent to accomplish a certain purpose, representing God, obeying Him and His purposes, just like the Lord Jesus, and then the people reject. That's exactly what is happening to us. And that's what you should expect. Peter goes on to say later, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. This is exactly what happened to the Lord Jesus, so this is exactly what we should expect. Now, we have to ask this question. Building a house for what purpose? So, so we have this building imagery, okay? So we got foundation stones, builders, and, and Peter is cobbling together all sorts of images in these two verses. There's four major themes that Peter uses that are richly embedded in the Old Testament, and he uses it to make one single point. And this is the first one. What type of building is God constructing? What type of structure is Christ the cornerstone of? This is the next major point. The family of God is also the house of God. He says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. This is one of my favorite analogies or metaphors in the entire Bible. The Bible uses a lot of analogies, and we we need all of them. So don't settle on one as as the one that you interpret all the rest through. It's okay to have favorites, I guess, but, but there are so many analogies or metaphors that help us understand. We are the family of God, and I think that is the controlling analogy of these two chapters or one and a half chapters, but we're also the house of God. What God is building is a spiritual house for Himself. So this structure, this metaphorical structure that God is building is a house for Himself. And Christ is the cornerstone, and we are the other stones that build up this house. The explicit purpose of this structure is then to be a dwelling place for God. It's not a physical structure, but those who trust in Christ together with Christ form the place where God is to dwell. This is how Paul says it in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 22. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And notice the connection now between how he quantifies or, or, or modifies the, the, the word stone in both places. He says of Jesus, as you come to him, a living stone. And then he says, you yourselves like living stones. 
We should look to Christ then as the pattern for us as believers. So, so notice the connection. So Jesus is the living stone that's rejected. Now he's been established as the cornerstone. We are living stones rejected, implied. And we are now the building blocks of God's eternal house. I want you to just pause and think about that. That, that, that we as believers are the building blocks of God's house. His dwelling place. I want you to ponder the glory of a mere believer. The Roman Catholics love their relics. A bone of John the Baptist. Wood from the cross. A stone where, in the pavement where Jesus fell and his, his cross fell down and caused blood to spill as he went to Golgotha. We Protestants do this too. Wood from the Mount of Olives. Exciting. How about building block of the eternal dwelling place of the Almighty God? That is your brother and sister in Christ. Even the very immature ones that you look down on are eternal pieces together that form the dwelling place of God. Yahweh himself. This obviously is rich in Old Testament imagery. This is what Peter is alluding to in verses 10 through 12 of chapter 1 when he says that they, were ser- they realized, the Old Testament prophets realized that they were serving not themselves but you. This temple theme, right? Which is what a dwelling place for God is. It's the temple. Think of David gathering all the supplies for the temple. And Solomon taking all of those elements and constructing a temple for glory and for beauty. Think of gathering all the supplies for the tent before that. All of this imagery, Peter sees that. This theme of gathering precious stones and gold and wood of choice construction and building a place for God. That is what he's saying. He's looking over all that narrative and saying, this is what Jesus is doing now. So you see that Jesus himself is the fulfillment of David who gathered the elements for the temple and Solomon who built it and the pieces of it all together. And that's you, he's saying. This is why you should read your Old Testament and think biblically about it. Think through the context of what Christ has come to do. That's you. This is the analogy he uses. This is how God himself speaks of it in Haggai chapter 2, verse 7. And I will shake all nations, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. He's making a beautiful house full of glory for himself, and you are the living stones that make up that house. There are not two temples being built, and the point is not, nor was it ever, to have a physical temple. This spiritual house, this permanent construction that is not of this creation, with Christ as the cornerstone and His people being the other building blocks of it, this is why, this is why Jesus says to the churches in Revelation three twelve, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. An integral piece 
of the structure, spiritual in nature, where God dwells. That's what you are. The reason this is one of my favorite analogies is just how many threads in the Bible show and illuminate this idea of God building his people into a house to dwell in. There's this great hope in the Old Testament especially that finally all of the hindrances will be removed and God will be able to dwell with his people. It happens over and over again, especially in Ezekiel, and I will be their God and they will be my people. So he's at work through everything he does to remove those hindrances and they, those things that make it impossible for him to dwell with his people. He's going to fix it and then he's going to come and dwell with his people. This is what he's doing, and this is why he's building us together into a house, so that that can happen. The name of that city at the end of Ezekiel is, in fact, the Lord is there. Do you realize that you are that city? You are the bride coming down from heaven? This also draws on the theme of nearness. You have... You have All the holy ones of the Old Testament had a sense that they knew God to some degree, but they knew that there was a sense in which God was far from them. Moses knew, I haven't seen your glory. You've only begun to show me your glory. Show me your glory. And David himself, a man after God's own heart, who's writing scripture while he's doing this, and the Spirit is carrying him along to, to cause him to write exactly what he's supposed to write. He says, your nearness is to me my good. He's he's hungering, he's craving to be closer to God. And so you see that all of these analogies are intersecting in this idea of a temple, a dwelling place for God. And another reason I love this is because the gospel is, in fact, the means by which this is made possible. Understand, the gospel's not the point. It may sound very odd to say that. The gospel makes it possible for God to take you and me and make us into permanent pieces of His spiritual house. He purifies us. He sanctifies us. He washes away our sins. And that experience of having all of that happening and seeing Christ's glory through it is what makes us qualified then to be an eternal component of His house. And another reason I love this theme is because it, it, it can't work unless you have one another. How good is a brick sitting off by itself? I've used the analogy in the new members class. How good is a kidney just sitting on a table? The New Testament uses the analogy of body, that we are part of God's body. We're members, right? If you cut out your kidney and sit it there on the table, it's not going to live for very long. Maybe you can... Try to figure out how to transplant it or something. But, but that's what you're like as a Christian, not connected to the body of Christ. Using this analogy, if you're not connected to the body of Christ, not, not functioning, doing your part with everyone else, then you're just a brick. Or a piece of gold gilding setting, sitting out there in the construction material. But put to use connected to the rest of the whole structure, then integral, needed, full of glory. Now, Peter stretches the analogy even further. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, 
to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. This theme of priesthood is amazing. It's not as if we get to be a part of the house, like a brick in the wall, a fixture on the ceiling, a countertop, just to sit there and bear the weight of glory that we're assigned. Peter pushes it further, and he blends the analogy with this analogy of priests. Remember, this is temple imagery. It's not just a house for God. A dwelling place for God is none other than the temple, His very temple. The meeting place between the Lord of all things and all other beings. That that place, that structure, spiritual as it is, is the temple of God. So those who trust in Jesus are not just the living stones that make up the structure of this house. We are also the holy priesthood who serve inside that temple alongside our high priest, Jesus Christ himself. The blending of these analogies of of that we're a living stone building up the house and the priests who serve inside the house, it's mind-blowing. But this blending of analogies is needed to represent truth. It is needed to promote humility. It's needed to show the limits of systematic theology. And it's needed to inspire your imagination. To conceive of yourself as one that God has created to be an integral, permanent stone that builds up His spiritual house and a priest who serves within that house. That's who you are at the same time. It's not that some of us get to be stones and some of us get to be priests. You're both simultaneously as a believer in Jesus. He's not speaking of two different jobs within the family of God. This spiritual house of God is precisely the full number of those who are united to Christ as priests. And the priests of God are precisely those who have been made into an integral part of His house. The role of living stones, of a living stone that is also a priest, is the same as a priest that is also a stone. And we'll see that in a bit. This, is, this passage here actually influences uh, a major theme of the Protestant Reformation, the priesthood of all believers. You're all priests insofar as you believe in Jesus. But you could also say, instead of just priesthood of all believers, it's also templehood of all believers. Later, Peter is going to refer to us as a royal priesthood. Peter loves this analogy, applying it to Christians. So so already we have temple, we have priesthood, we're going to see in a little bit sacrifices, and then we're going to, in in chapter, uh, I believe it's three, no, it's, it's later part of two, we are also royal in our capacity as priesthood. So the four major themes of the Old Testament Sacrifice, temple, priest, king are all applied to you. Not just Jesus, you as the people of God. All the fulfillment of the promises regarding both the priesthood and the kingship then apply to us. There is one high priest forever. and You serve as a servant alongside 
him inside the spiritual house of God that is made up by you. And he's not descended from Aaron. There are not two priesthoods. There is one priesthood that has any meaning eternally. And that is the one under which we serve our high priest after the order of Melchizedek. He is the royal high priest. And we are royal priests under him. So just a gut check. Do you think of your Christianity this way at all? With this richness? With, with, with this vivid imagery? Does it inspire you to live a holy life? To look at your brothers and sisters with the glory that's supposed to be there as you behold what God is doing in their lives? Again, just consider the glory of a mere Christian. Do you have an impressive resume? Are you easily impressed by those who do? Are you drawn to or attracted to celebrities, fame, even Christian celebrities, favorite preachers? What about power and influence? Does that draw you off sides and make you prefer that person who has power and influence? I get invited to a pastor's group occasionally, and they will say things like, oh, we got the sheriff coming. We got the mayor coming. And the idea is, which is fine, the idea is like, oh, you want to be around people of influence, don't you? You want to be around people with power. You want, you want insight. You want to be on the in-group. We're so... <laughs> we make distinctions according to the flesh. And we think it's okay. But sitting beside you, no matter how old they are, or how immature in faith they are, you have someone who is a priest serving under the leadership and authority of the eternal high priest after the order of Melchizedek in the temple of the Most High God. Your brothers and sisters are that. And you are that. Are you living like it? How good of a job are you doing? And speaking of job, let's get to the description of this family business, right? This, this, is, this is the attributes. This is what you are. So, so you've been made into this thing. You've been placed into this priesthood under the high priest. You've been made a part of the eternal spiritual dwelling of God. Now what's the job? To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That's the family business. The job of the priests who are also stones, or the job of the stones who are also priests, is to offer these spiritual sacrifices. He has done this all for a reason. You are not just saved as a byproduct of a divine rescue mission. You are not trophies of God's grace to just sit on the shelf in heaven collecting heavenly dust. And we are not just going to heaven to hang out and have a good time like a luxury vacation or just an extended, really spiritual quiet time. That's not why you're there. You're going there. We are saved. We are caused to be born again by the powerful working of God in order to join this family business of offering spiritual sacrifices to God. And it never stops. 
So, what are these spiritual sacrifices? Be very careful not to quickly fill that void with what you think counts as a spiritual sacrifice. Most people, I think, who have a working theological definition for what it means to offer a spiritual sacrifice, I think, would be almost completely individualistic. You be holy by yourself. You make sure that you do the right thing. You make sure that you obey. The altar in your heart, right? That that is where the spiritual sacrifice is offered and you directly to God. That would, of course, be included, but that doesn't work with the analogy, the flavor of the metaphor here. There was no one who could make by themselves a sacrifice. It was a function of the entire priesthood. The flavor of this analogy demands that it is something that we do together. The verbs are all plural. We offer spiritual sacrifices, not each of us individually by ourselves, but us together. We render praise and offer sacrifices together. This is the flavor of the unity they had in Acts chapter 2 and chapter 4. The whole community offering something together that is pleasing to God. This is what we should be thinking about when we sing together. We, our fellowship and love together, is both the place and the offering itself. The altar and the offering. We are are the building and the altar And the sacrifice, our love together, our obedience together, our loving one another, because love is the fulfillment of the law. So as you love one another, that is the sacrifice that we're being summoned to give. Peter has already told us, love one another earnestly, with a sincere brotherly love. These aren't disconnected ideas. Your holiness individually, of course, but mainly for the purpose of a sincere brotherly love being offered to God as a spiritual sacrifice. Jesus loving us is what made his sacrifice so acceptable to God. Try doing this alone. And it's an, it's an offensive sacrifice to him. Remember what happened to Saul? When he tried to offer a sacrifice by himself, not in the prescribed way, without the prophet. Someone had just gone in and killed the bull and done their own thing, not according to this prescribed law. That's an offense to God. We do it together. We're saved by faith in order to work. Don't misunderstand Paul's theology of the relationship between faith and works in Romans and Galatians. Yes, we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, but the Christian life is one of living in the new way that we are ushered into because of this gracious working of God. This is how Paul himself says it in Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before him that we should walk in them. And here, Peter is giving us this very specific way to understand these good works. Spiritual sacrifices offered to God together through Jesus Christ. So, 
the benefit of this, I think, is just a transformation in the way you see doing good things. Transforming the way you understand what obedience is. Hopefully, all the children in this room know that, in general, you should obey your parents, right? Honor your father and mother. So instead of just thinking of that as a do or a don't, a thing to check off the list, think of it this way. Offering up a spiritual sacrifice to God through my honoring of my parents as God would have me do. Singing loudly in church, lifting up God's glory for all to hear. Instead of letting that be determined by whether or not you like the song very much or, or feel good in the service, how about offering up a spiritual sacrifice to God together? No matter how you feel and how the day has gone, because He deserves it. Loving your spouse, hopefully all you husbands know that you should love your wives. But instead of a, a thing that you do to check off the list, oh, I've satisfied my obligation before God, how about offering up a spiritual sacrifice to God through your love for your spouse? You can do this with everything. That, and this is what the Bible means when it says, do everything as unto the Lord. That every bit of your obedience should be towards Him to offer it up. This causes a radical reorientation of our lives. And helps us work in this family business. Because God deserves it. And we do it together. And we help each other do it more consistently and faithfully. It should bother you if your brothers or sisters are falling down in their job of offering up a spiritual sacrifice to the Lord. Are you going to do anything about it? It should bring you great joy when you see your brothers or sisters, weak in faith as they may be, different in perspective as they may be, as they are offering up a spiritual sacrifice to the Lord and encouraging you to do the same thing. And then he says, through Jesus Christ. And we could spend a lot of time talking about that. Acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. He's answering the question, how is it that any of these spiritual sacrifices are acceptable to the Lord? if they are rendered to him through faith in the Lord Jesus. That's the only way they are acceptable. Anything that does not proceed from faith in the Lord Jesus is sinful and defensive to him. This is how we render him praise, that it's all because, just as we looked at in the first, coming to him, that he becomes our treasure, our goal, the thing that we're pursuing, what we crave, and out of that desire... Out of that trajectory of life comes or is rendered the praises that are due to him. That is what makes them acceptable. Not how pretty you sound when you sing, but the faith that animates you. So you see, the gospel is how we get here. The gospel makes it possible for us to do this. This is the point. He forgives us of our sins through the death of His Son for those who trust in Christ. So now we're not offensive in His presence. 
We've been given the new birth. The Holy Spirit gives us new life, a new mindset, a new way of thinking about life and breath and everything. And so as we live consistent with how the Holy Spirit is working in us, we can now render to the God of all the universe the praise that is due His name. That's what's happening. That's why the gospel is necessary. It's not just a component of uh, things went bad in the garden, now i got to fix it. A few more things to think about as we circle the wagons here. I want you to see that the flavor of all the verbs in this text give the sense or the flavor that this building is under construction. He says, as you come to Him, or as you are coming to Him, it is being built. It is not completely built yet. There are people who are going to be an integral part of this temple who don't exist yet. It's moving somewhere. We're not a finished product. This house of God is under construction. This has two implications, I think, is that uh, you should show mercy then to those who struggle. The whole house is under construction. That means that the living stones that are a part of this house are also under construction. You should have mercy towards others, and an encouragement to yourself. You won't be an ideal brick in the wall of the temple of God until he finally destroys the flesh and gives you a new body. So that's an encouragement. Because if you look at yourself, if you analyze your life under the perfect holy standard of God, if the Lord were to count transgressions, iniquities, who could stand? None of us would qualify as a brick in the wall of the house of God. Or as a priest, we'd all be disqualified. But there is some sense in which this house is under construction, but we're already in it. The the sacrifices are already starting to happen. It's It's like when Zerubbabel rebuilt the temple. They had just laid the foundation and the altar, and they started offering sacrifices. Well, there were no walls There was no roof. There was no gilding of the walls. There was no holy of holies. But they were offering sacrifices. This is what you should do. You already have a chance right now to begin to be what you will be. The Holy Spirit, even, is content to dwell in this unfinished house. And He is with you. He dwells in you. This is a foretaste, then, of what will finally be fully ours in glory. We're being made into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So the Spirit is already here as an advanced party of the fullness of the glory of God, making us into a house suitable for Him. So press into that. Lean into that identity and so live. I want to give you a few questions for reflection Are you living an unimaginative Christianity? And I hope you can see why that's important. We're given these analogies for a reason, to set trajectory and to inspire. It's one thing to say, well, God is right, I should obey Him. Figure it out. It's another thing to realize what God has made you to be and what He has qualified you to do and the family business you've been given a stakehold in. 
Is your obedience uninspired? You know, if you're given the choice between disobedience and uninspired obedience, you should choose uninspired obedience, but you can't stay there. It'll dry your soul. Offering spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God, that's inspiring. That gives you a trajectory for life. No matter how young in the faith you may be, if this is your job, render to the Lord the spiritual sacrifices that He's due. Do you really believe these things about yourself? Sure, you have issues. The house is under construction. But do you believe that this is what God has already made you to be through faith in Jesus Christ? How do you treat your fellow priests and stones? Are you happy that they are going to be a part of God's eternal dwelling too, right alongside you? Are you happy that you're going to serve alongside them forever, offering up these sacrifices to the Lord? The way we treat one another betrays our unbelief in these things. It's like we would rather be a freelance priest, an occasional decoration so that we don't have to spend time with all the other fixtures in the house and the other priests of the order. How well are you doing your job? Are you working together with your brothers and sisters to bring to the Lord the spiritual sacrifices that are due to Him together? How well, or or how do you view your rejection from the world? What is characteristic of the building blocks of this house is that we've all been rejected. God is taking all that has been rejected by men, by the builders in the case of Christ, and he's cobbling all that together into his permanent dwelling place. In fact, your rejection from the world is part of the qualifications to be a part of this house. But have you sought to make friendship with the world? Friendship with the world is enmity with God. And then lastly, is your life and your worship through Jesus Christ? Are you trying to approach him through another mediator, maybe yourself, that you've done a good enough job and this is what makes you acceptable or a mature Christian? Or is it only, always, through the Lord Jesus, that you conceive of yourself or anything that you offer as acceptable in His sight. Friends, this is our job. This is our identity. And the summons to anyone who does not share this faith is to believe today and be given this great privilege and heritage, to belong to the family of God, to serve as His spiritual house and the priest's under his leadership. Let's pray. Father, thank you for making us into this. I pray that we would not shrink back from our minds being stunned and even confused at the collision of these analogies and how difficult it is to conceive of these things all at once. But help us stand back and be in awe of the glory of what you have made us to be. 
Father, we know that the house is under construction, and we feel it. We feel the dust and the disorganization and the lack of efficiency everywhere. But thank you that you, by your Spirit, have come to dwell in us. And he gives us a foretaste of what will be fully ours. So we ask that you would dwell more in power with us. That you would inspire us to be what you have made us to be. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.